Let's read from uh, Romans 12. Seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome evil by evil, but overcome evil with good. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Thanks be to God. So we are continuing our uh, vision and mission and values series that we're calling Mother Tongue. So Mother Tongue is learning language. It's what embodies us. It's how we learn to be able to speak about who we are and what we're doing. Last uh, Two weeks ago, we talked about our vision. It is providing a place at the table of God's grace. That is why we exist. How we do that is our mission. Our mission is to invite people into a relationship with Christ and form a community that worships and serves together for the transformation of Denver, for the transformation of our neighborhoods, for the transformation of our place. We do this through worship, relationship, and service. That's a summary statement. If you don't remember our mission, it is long. I don't remember it all the time. But it's worship, relationship, and service. All of this happens through prayer. Prayer is the baseline of what we do. It's the foundation. It's where we start. Everybody has values, and that's what we're going to begin to explore today. Values shape how we spend our money, how we spend our time, how we spend our energy, where we uh, put all of those things. If we don't know, we can look at those things to help determine what our values are. So if we spend a lot of money going out to eat, we like good food and good wine, maybe you know I'm talking about myself, uh, then I can look and say that's a value of mine. Now, if I spent money traveling and, and going to see exotic places and spending my time and money in that way, that would say that I have a value of travel. Neither of these values are necessarily wrong. They are just different, and they help us know where we determine where we're going to spend our time, our money, and our energy. And so when we begin to look at who we are as a church, we want to help know where we're going to spend our time, our money, our, value, or our, our, our energies, and what we do and how we do it. We have a set of values here at the table, and they flow out of our vision and our mission. They are the things that we will continually emphasize as a community. They distinguish us in particular. They're not necessarily wrong or make other churches and their values wrong, but they're who we are and how we are going to embody and live out the gospel as we know it. So they are in development. We are still uh, starting up. We are still learning who we are and how we function. And so these are still shaping us uh, for who that is. And so, but at this point, well, I've identified about five things of how we function and how we would like to function uh, going into the future. They are hospitality, rootedness or a sense of place, story, feasting, and beauty. I've added beauty. 
I haven't even told Nick about beauty yet, but I added that this week. These are the things that shape our culture, who we are. Culture is, is kind of embedded into us. It kind of helps determine who we are. So it goes beyond even understanding what the language is, right? When I studied abroad in Costa Rica, I knew Spanish when I went down there, but I learned a whole new, uh, some new vocab. I learned a whole new way in which they operated, very different from other Hispanic and Latino cultures as well. And so I learned their culture. They, is culture is what we do without even thinking about it. So our language is a part of that, but our culture helps determine that as well. So this morning, we're going to focus on hospitality. I have a lot I could say on hospitality, so forgive me if I have a lot of extra quotes, if I get long-winded, because hospitality is near and dear to my own heart and how God has shaped me. Hospitality has been industrialized and it's been turned into entertainment, right? William Sonoma, Food Network, all these things have done great stuff to, to remind us of the need for hospitality in our lives, but they've also kind of made it much more on the entertainment side of things rather than sharing who we are with one another. Eugene Peterson said, entertainment is distracting people with what's wrong with the world by giving them excitement and diversions temporary temporary vacations from the wrong entertainment doesn't create relationships hospitality creates relationships entertainment can be just be mere performance of having you guys over and then making sure you have a good time but hospitality is really sharing our lives with one another biblical hospitality goes way beyond mere entertainment Last week, we talked about um, a word in verse 10 that we don't have printed in, philostorgos is the Greek word, and it comes from two words, and it's translated brotherly affection. This is familial love that we have within our family, so that when we love our kids, when we love our spouses, this is that love that we have there. When we extend that to the church, so how we love people in the church already. It's very, it's very directional in that. Hospitality, the word that we have at the very end of, of, our, of verse 13, which is what the verse that we read at the very beginning, is philozinia. It comes from two words that sounds very similar to philostorgos, but philozinia is this familial love of a stranger. So it's the same love that we have here, but it's directed outside of the church. It's directed outside of our family. A little caveat on that, but I'll get to that in just a minute. It is, uh, hospitality has both a direction and a purpose to it. So its direction is outside the family of God, but its purpose is to make people a part of the family of God. So it's loving a stranger so that they become family. Jesus asked, who is our neighbor? Or he was asked this, and so we asked the same, who is our stranger? If we just, uh, if we just, box this in, if you will, into mercy or only those outside the church, I think we make it a little, uh, we narrow the definition of hospitality a little too much because then we can be too far removed from that as well. But even as Stacy and I are, have we been married 11 years? We are still strangers to one another at various times. So we extend this hospitality and getting to know each other, creating free space for us to be able to uh, become family as well. Now, and Henry Nowen in his book, Reaching Out, uh, defines hospitality as the creation of free space 
where stranger can enter and become a friend instead of an enemy. Hospitality is not to change people, but to offer them space where change can take place. It's not to bring men and women over to our side, but to offer them freedom, not disturbed by dividing lines. So it's removing that. It's opening up the space to be able to come and be together despite our differences. Hospitality is at the very heart of the gospel. To paraphrase Paul earlier in Romans, he says, while you were yet strangers, Christ died for you. That is the very heart of the gospel and is the very heart of how Christ has loved us. He's loved us while we were enemies, while we were strangers, so that we would become a part of the family of God. When we practice hospitality, we are enacting the gospel. How do we do that? We enact the gospel and hospitality in three ways. Through compassion, through lament, and through meals. Compassion, lament, and meals. Compassion. Uh, Verses uh, 13 uh, through 16. Let me read those again for us. Seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Bless, rejoice, weep. Live in harmony. Don't be stuck up. That's what haughty means. Don't be stuck up. Don't be wise in your own sight. I think the way to sum this up is have compassion. We have compassion on those who are around us, those who we may or may not be in relationship with. Compassion is different between, from sympathy and empathy. Sympathy is simply observing and validating someone's feelings. Empathy is feeling those feelings with them, but compassion goes even deeper than that. Compassion comes from two words, uh, Latin word, um, passion, which means suffering, and that front uh, suffix or prefix uh, come, which means with. So to suffer with someone. So it goes beyond just validating someone's feelings. It goes beyond just feeling their feelings, but it goes, it turns into entering into their suffering with them. This sounds odd that those of us who are being persecuted, as the Romans were in their church there, that they would bless those, that they would enter into the suffering with those who are persecuting them. But why do people persecute others? I think it's often because they themselves are suffering or believe that they will suffer at the hand of the other people. Compassion, though, forms a relationship with those people who, who persecute us. In John 11, we see Jesus coming to have his, re- and his reactions differ when he comes to the tomb of Lazarus. When he meets Martha, he comes and he declares himself, I am the resurrection and the life. He meets her in her, um, her, her rejoicing of Jesus finally coming. But when he meets Martha, he weeps with her. He weeps and rejoices. Jesus is able to hold those two things in tension, in tension with one another. I think one of the big ways that we can do this and have compassion with one another is simply to listen. Listen to one another. 
close our own mouths is what I tell my kids this all the time. Close your mouth. Listen to what I'm saying right now. But for us to sit down and have space with one another, to be able to listen to what's going on, to be able to rejoice with one another, to be able to weep with one another, to be able to bless those who are persecuting us, to listen to their pain and not prescribe them uh, something to do. There was a counseling experiment that was done uh, a number of years ago, and uh, a guy who had zero counseling training was told, you're going to be in the hot seat. You're the counselor. You're going to pretend to be the counselor. The one thing you can't do is speak. And so throughout the day, various people would come in, and they'd have an hour with the counselor, and he had just had to sit there and say absolutely nothing. And while at the beginning, some of the people were quite upset with him that he wasn't engaging with them, at the very end of their time, they always got up and thanked, them for, thanked this person for listening and hearing what they had to say, hearing the pain and the suffering and the rejoicing and what their life was. He didn't say anything. All he did was sit there and listen. I think we could do that a lot more in our own lives. This is being with another person. This is being with them in their suffering. It creates space for them. It requires curiosity, maybe not for what our own wisdom says we should be doing, but to hear what God is doing and to be curious about that. The first practice of hospitality is compassion. The second one is lament. Look at verses 17 through 19 with me. Paul writes, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Do not repay evil. Be honorable. Live peaceably as much as is possible. And remember that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Lament is being honest about our suffering and the suffering of others and engaging God with it. I think this is the central point of this whole passage, how we are able to have compassion on one another and how we are able to share meals with others as well depends on us being honest before God about the suffering that is taking place in our lives. This phrase, this remember vengeance is mine, comes from Deuteronomy 32:35, And it's the song of Moses. Moses has spent time in Deuteronomy telling the Israelites a second time what the law is. This is how you're going to act when you enter into the promised land and be able to relate to your God. This is the God that brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery, and has delivered you into the promised land. Vengeance is his. It's not that you're not going to face suffering anymore, but we will engage God in that. We will remember our, our relationship with him. This is the God who has relieved you and will continue to relieve your suffering. I think we often ask, how can a good God allow suffering in this world? Or why does God even allow suffering? This is a a why question. This is a reasoning question, and I think it falls short of actually giving a satisfactory answer. That's how how I've experienced it, because I believe I can still out-reason God, right? 
like even if he did give me an answer for why we've experienced different sufferings in the world, I'm going, but there had to be another way, God. There had to be another way for me to be able to grow, to be able to, to lean on you more, to be able to grow in my likeness of Christ. I don't think we're, it's something that we, the answer that is given, we will be satisfied with. But I think a more honest answer or a more honest question is where is God in all the suffering in the world. And when we begin to look at who Jesus is, God incarnate, God with us, we begin we begin to see that he is right here with us in this life. He is not removed from the suffering, but he suffers with us. With is the preposition used most of our relationship with God. God is with us in this life. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, he continues to be with us. But we've got to be willing to ask the question. I think a lot of times we think our God is too small to be able to bring our cares and concerns to him. Either he's too small for us and that he's close to us, he's intimate with us, or he's way too big and he's off in the distance and we can't approach him with our own questions. But the Psalms remind us that we are able to do this. I think it's, I haven't planned this out. We're just doing a psalm a week. But to have Psalm 13 as a psalm on Mother's Day, when we both celebrate how God has given life and brought mothers into this world and given them the care and concern, and also knowing that there are so many who have experienced uh, motherlessness in and of themselves, uh, and to be able to know that that pain and suffering is there, we are able to cry out with the psalmist, How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? We can bring our laments to God. Lament is engaging God with the pain and suffering in our lives. It's to be honest before him and invite him into that suffering. It's not a time to hold him off, but it's a time to invite him near to us, to bring him into conversation. That's why we pray the Psalms. That's why we do it, to train our own hearts and our minds in that. We can do that on a daily basis, and we can even go beyond that. We can write our own laments. We can begin with these two questions in Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? And then begin to write about the suffering and the pain we are experiencing in our own lives. Laments right-size our God reminding us that he is a big God, big enough to handle our complaints, but he is also so near to us and intimate with us that he wants to, and he is with us in our suffering. First practice of hospitality is compassion. The second is lament. The third is meals. I get really excited about eating. I don't know why our kids don't. Uh, it's like one of my most exciting parts of the day. I get to sit down and have something delicious, um, but they, they don't care right now. But the meal that we're talking about here goes well beyond just nourishing ourselves. Verses 20 and 21, Paul writes, To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Feed your enemy. Give him a drink. Heap burning coals on his head. That's kind of what we would like to do. But Paul says by feeding him and giving him uh, satisfying, quenching his thirst, we do this. 
this brings compassion and lament together, and it puts us face to face with our enemy. Meals are the materiality of hospitality. It's tangible, it's physical, it's shared, it's sacrificial. Eating, eating can be done alone. Any of us can sit down, we can go through the drive-thru, we can grab something, we can eat in our car, we can even go to a restaurant by ourselves and, and eat. But meals are shared. Meals are when we sit down at a table together. When we feed our enemy, when we give them something to drink, we can't be uninvolved with them. This is up close. This is intimate. This is personal. <laughs> As I was preparing this, I was reminded of, um, oddly enough, Beaches was like one of my favorite movies as a child. I remember bawling my eyes out and Bette Midler singing, From a distance, you look like my friend, even though we are at war. But Paul, I'm not going to sing it, <laughs> but Paul is instructing us to get face to face with our enemy and begin to see them as a friend. Jesus was always telling parables about food and drink, and he regularly connected it to salvation. Luke's gospel is kind of the gospel of hospitality. It's the gospel of Jesus eating and drinking with uh, sinners and saints alike. And Luke uses more words or more times of save and salvation, as well as telling the stories of Jesus eating and drinking. And I think those are very closely tied to one another. Because sharing hospitality is sharing the saving act, the salvific act of God in Jesus. A table is the setting of relationship and salvation. Heaping coals on the heads of our enemies, to me, sounds very much like barbecue language. I get excited about that. That's going to be feasting in there. But it's also altar language. We see in Isaiah 6 that Isaiah is now in the throne room of heaven, and he's before God Almighty, and the, his, his robe fills the entire temple. And he says, Who am I? I'm unworthy. I am unclean, a man of unclean lips to be here. And an angel of the Lord brings a coal from the altar and touches his lips and says, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin has been atoned for. Heaping coals on our enemy's head, feeding and giving them food and drink, purifies them, brings them into a relationship with us, and ultimately with God as well. N.T. Wright said, when Jesus himself wanted to explain to his disciples what his forthcoming death was all about, he didn't give them a theory, he gave them a meal. C.T. McMahon, another theologian, said, Of all the means by which Jesus could have chosen to be remembered, he chose to be remembered by a meal. What he considered memorable and characteristic of his ministry was his table fellowship. The meal, one of humankind's most basic and common practices, was transformed by Jesus into an occasion of divine encounter. It was in the sharing of food and drink that he invited his companions to share in the grace of God. The quintessence of Jesus' redemptive mission was revealed in his eating with sinners, repentant and unrepentant alike. We need to eat meals 
especially with those whom we don't love. Sometimes that might be <laughs> people in our own families, right? It often begins there because if we're not having family meals together, how are we able to eat with those whom we don't love? I think we run around so much so often in this life that we just don't make time for that. But it's where culture is created. It's where our family is, is, is formed. It's where we can share love with one another. And I get that it's really hard to do this. Every, every other aspect of our lives is telling us to run around, to do sports, to be involved in something else, to work late, whatever it may be. Or sometimes it's just hard because family mealtimes aren't always the most enjoyable thing that we do. There can be a lot of yelling. There can be a lot of silliness. There can be a lot of food on the ground or a dog trying to eat a muffin out of a child's hand, right? These are things that happen. But this is real life, and we live in the mess of it. My encouragement would be to eat more often together than you don't. Eat more meals together as a family than you don't eat together because that will begin to form your family to be able to shape it. And then you are able to invite others into it. Have an extra chair, make a little bit more food. We've been, I think we've been invited into almost everyone's home here and we've loved being able to do that. We love being able to invite you into our home as well to share a meal, to sit down at the table together to be able to eat. This creates space. This is an opportunity to listen This is an opportunity to be curious about what God is doing in the lives of our family and the lives of our friends, our neighbors, the strangers, and even our enemies. Eugene Peterson said, Meals are frontline strategies countering the inexorable destruction of hospitality that is running amok in the Western world today. The meal is the Jesus-sanctioned practice for reenacting in our dailiness all that is involved in the Eucharistic meal in which we participate in the sacrifice of Christ for the salvation of the world. Every time we eat a meal together, we are able to reenact the meal that Jesus gave us as well, to make it, make it a communion, to make it a Eucharistic meal, to be able to share our lives with one another as Christ has shared his life with us. M.F.K. Fisher was a food writer in the early, early 20th century through, through both wars. And people said, why are you writing about food and eating instead of power and love? She responded thusly. The answer is easy to say that like most other humans, I'm hungry. But it is more than that. There's a communion of more than our bodies when bread is broken and wine drunk. Meals shared and hospitality extended meet two of our basic needs, hunger and love. And it reminds us that we are part of something bigger than ourselves, the body of Christ and a shared humanity. Sure, hospitality is challenging. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes money. It's incredibly inefficient, but it's creating free space to love the stranger. And that is not a natural act of us. But it also means that people become a part of our lives, that we can begin to form relationships and perhaps people that we wouldn't usually eat with. This is what Christ has done for us. Every time we celebrate the meal that Jesus instructed us to eat as his follows, we are remembering his suffering with us, his laments 
of God being present in suffering and the meal that he gave us to celebrate. Remembering is no mere moral, uh, uh, mental assent. It is reenacting what Jesus did. It is participating in who he is and what he continues to do as the saving God who is not removed from our suffering, but who is with us in it and brings us into the life of God as well. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for how you love us. We are grateful that you extend your hospitality to us, that while we were yet enemies, you died for us, so that we may know of the love and grace and mercy that you pour out upon us. May we be a church that is known for our hospitality, that regularly invites people in, that encourages them and loves them where they are, that creates space for them to be honest about the pain and suffering in their, in their lives, as well as how you have come to be with us and to be with them in it as well, Lord. And be near to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Encourage our hearts, uplift us, give us strength to be able to know how much you love us and how much you love our enemies. We pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.